When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. What is political science really? More precisely, is it actually a science in the same way that, say, chemistry or biology is? UC Berkeley political theorist Mark Bevere certainly doesn't think so. For him, the obvious, but still somehow vastly underappreciated point is that, unlike trying to figure out how a crystal is put together or how a disease is transmitted, comprehending the political world necessarily involves trying to piece together people's intentions, their beliefs, desires, and underlying motivations, which is precisely why he views political understanding as, as he calls it, an interpretive art. I wanted to ask you about your PhD thesis, because okay. I knew you did that on British socialism, and my, my understanding, that's all I knew, and my understanding was that you had a somewhat different take on it insofar as you weren't somebody who was terribly motivated to look at things in terms of class struggle and class structure, yeah. and you were more interested in individuals and narratives, and, and, and you start seeing, at least from my perspective of objectivity slash ignorance, you, you start seeing aspects of this emphasis on historicism and emphasis on breaking out of standard box-like mm-hmm. structures of, of what other people believe during your PhD thesis or during that, yes. that whole aspect. Um, so m- my first question is, is that reasonable? And you just said yes, so I'm assuming that, that it was. Right. And my second question is, did that happen as you were doing your studies or did you go into it with that particular attitude or or how did that awareness of looking at things from Mm. perhaps a broader more individualistic perspective develop i i I think there are questions it's very hard to be self-aware in answering and that's probably one Uh, i think when i look back i think i was just grew up in a family particularly on my mother in terms of my mother's influence rather than say my father's or my older brother's I grew up in a family which was influenced by romantic ideas and kind of ideas of self-expression and probably lurking there was a sense of individual agency and its relevance and importance but not as a formal academic idea um, but as that kind of loose cultural idea that one inherits from their family and then I think when I went to Oxford to do my PhD I wouldn't say I was self-consciously aware of what you just said no. Um, I would say that I approached British Socialism as someone who was a pol- uh, more or less self-consciously doing something like political theory and therefore the history of political thought. 
which means that although I think you're, you're loosely right to say that I adopted an innovative approach, I think someone like Gary Stintman-Jones was also doing something very similar already. But although you're loosely right, I don't think it necessarily means, wow, I was very innovative. It's more that as a historian of political thought, I was naturally interested in what people had said and written. And because the history of political thought tends to go from canonical thinker to canonical thinker, I naturally tended to think about what individuals had written and said. Whereas at the time, with the exception of someone like Gary Stentman-Jones, at the time the dominant approach to the history of socialism was heavily rooted in labour history and social history. And therefore it was about the objective characteristics of various types of social movements or groups of people around ideas like class. So I, I think you're right, but I think probably, although there was this kind of subconscious element of family inheritance, it was really almost just an accident of my wanting to explore British socialism, but wanting to do so as a historian of political thought rather than a social historian. So, two follow-up questions. Why British socialism in particular? What was it about that that naturally appealed to you? And I'll save my other one because I have this tendency to ask seven questions in a row and people can't remember them. So, So um, It was the Thatcher years. Um, So I started at Oxford in the early 80s, 82. Um, So Thatcher had been around for three or four years. And I was a fairly committed socialist as long as we understand that term very broadly. Um, See, you're sensitive because you live in the United States now. So you're sensitive about people hurling rocks at you when you use the word But also I think New Labour, which has made it so that the term could be a negative term. And also Old Labour, which made it so that the term socialist was heavily associated with things like public ownership, um, labour politics, all of which I'm much more ambiguous about. My form of socialism is much more... Utopian. I don't like the word utopia because it suggests unrealistic. But you know, it's, <laughs> it certainly does. It's more, it's more idealistic and more, right. you know, uh, more about non-governmental institutions and radical self-rule. Um, so Thatcher was had come to power, and I was really around Thatcher. There were questions about what the state should be and what it shouldn't be, and and she was very hostile to the state and moreover was branding socialists as statists. And I was not so hostile to the state. And insofar as I was, it was for none of the reasons that she was hostile to the state. And I thought of myself as a socialist, but not really a statist. Um, So what I wanted to do was to explore socialist ideas about the state and offer an alternative account of socialism to that which I felt was not only being used by Thatcher to caricature socialism, but to some extent had been adopted by new Labour, precise, by old Labour rather, or the Labour Party at the time, precisely because of it, the socialist policies it has adopted being centred around things like collective ownership of the means of production, trade union struggle, rather than about trying to create alternative ways of life. Right. I mean, one of the things I sometimes tell students in this context was slightly after I started my PhD, Ken Livingston was in charge of the Greater London County Council. This is Red Ken. Yeah, like Red Ken. Yeah, yeah. And you know, that's what he was known as, because he was so off the wall left wing. Yeah. And the kind of thing he did that let, got him labelled Red Ken was provide funding for lesbian feminist groups. And so it wasn't really that he was about nationalisation. That wasn't seen as so desperately crazy and off the wall. What was seen as crazy and off the wall 
was this idea about you about that socialism was about alternative ways of being and alter, you know greater tolerance across re- different sexualities etc mm. etc and i was really sympathetic to all of those things but they they were not not only were they things that were being dis- ruled, written out of socialism um, by Thatcher, they were things that were very marginal within the Labour Party at the time. Right. And presumably that's also a sign of the willingness of the press or, or aspects of society to rush to put people into boxes as well and, and, and start stereotyping yeah, so. as, as best as possible. Uh, and, and in fact distorting, distorting things. You also have clearly this proclivity towards intellectual history, history of political thought. So it seems to me, uh, again, on the outside looking in, yes, you have emotional reasons to be aligned in this particular direction. Mm -hmm. You come from a particular culture. Your family comes from a particular culture. You see Margaret Thatcher in power. You see uh, what I might um, be so bold as to say, the elimination or at least breakdown of several aspects of the state that you were not uh, terribly happy about. Um, and so there's all of this from a, from a, a, I guess, a standard political perspective. But at the same time, you are interested in philosophical ideas and historical mm. approaches and philosophical approaches to history and the power of ideas mm. themselves, which I think might lend itself towards more of this, not even so much individualistic approach, but this idea of getting out of old stereotypes, of looking beyond pat boxes and saying, well, hang on a minute, who was actually doing the thinking here and there and how did these ideas gain influence? Is that, is that a fair commentary or not so much? Yes, I th- again, I, I, it's something it's hard to be self-conscious about. I mean, I, uh, s- the British education system is odd. Um, at school, I was the only thing I really shone at until at least age 16 or 17 was mathematics. I'm, I'm not like several other major political theorists today who were good at everything and were obviously going to go and be an undergraduate at Cambridge and Oxford and shine that. I thought you were going to say something different. I thought you were going to say, I'm not like all these other political scientists who couldn't add. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I, I could. I was good at mathematics. And, and, but I was useless at anything with my hands. Um, so I couldn't do anything experimental, which ruled out the sciences. So uh, for, our, for my A-levels, which is the last two years of our high school education, I ended up doing what was called double mass A-levels, so two mass. And then I had to find non-science subjects to go with that. So I chose English and history. Um, Mm. And when it came to go to university, I was still the only thing I was any good at, really, was the mass. I did quite well in the history, but really it was just the mass. Um, So I could have just gone and done mass, and I did think about that, but it seemed a bit dry. Um, And so what I thought I would do is something that straddled the kind of dealing with human stuff of English and history with the mass. So actually I originally enrolled in a psychology program and then when I found that was very experimental and involved doing things with rats, switched to philosophy and political science. Um, And I think that the the nearest I can come to explaining why I got interested in the philosophical sides of these things is that something about the fact that I was just the only thing I've ever really been any good at is abstract conceptual things, whether they're numbers or ideas. And so I, I just am quite good at that. And I think if you're quite good at something and you get a lot of positive praise for it, you tend to come back to it. So I think that's probably why I've, mm. how I drifted into thinking about these things more philosophically. And then when I arrived at Oxford, 
there was massive prestige around abstract analytic philosophy and also a lot of really, really great people working on it there. And I think that kind of sucked me in. So for a long time I was doing the work on British socialism alongside work on the philosophy of the social sciences. Um, and then I kind of stopped doing the philosophy of social science bit for a while while I finished my PhD thesis. But then once I got a job, I went straight back to the philosophy of social science bit and that became my first book. So there was a sense in which the two were moving, although they had different roots, I think. Right. Um, they, were they were kind of moving in tandem. So I was forced to think about what they said to one another. But, so I want to push you a little bit because you're, you're British, of course, and so you've got this self-effacing, humble aspect which comes to the fore. Um, not so much to... to, to make you appear self-aggrandizing, but I, I remember a phrase in, um, uh, in your book, The a Theory of Governance, where you talk about the importance of, the, of, an, of a philosophical approach, and you make some remark to the extent, and I'm paraphrasing so I probably won't get this right, that it would be wise if more sociologists of science would take a philosophical view because they don't often even care about aspects mm -hmm. of philosophy. Mm -hmm. They're only interested in methodology. Mm -hmm. And in fact, for an example, you talk about networks and you say everyone's talking about networks and networks, they don't even know if networks necessarily exist. They should actually pay some attention to mm -hmm. the philosophical aspect of the ontology mm -hmm. of what are these things and do they really exist? So um, that strikes me as uh, uh, that strikes me as a deeply philosophical approach insofar as you're putting philosophy front mm -hmm. and center. Now this is a more academic work and we're going to move on as we talked about before <laughs> in, into aspects that are less rigorously academic. But within an academic context, to start there, you definitely are, it seems to me, consistently putting philosophical approaches, philosophical analysis, philosophical perspectives front and center, and in fact implying, if not outwardly stating, not enough people are doing this in this particular field. Is that fair? Yes, that's very fair. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, there's lots to say there. I think one thing to say there is just something like once a philosopher, always a philosopher. <laughs> once you've learned to think in those ways, you can't unlearn them. Oh, but it's um, more than that. I mean, you actually think that they're superior uh, at yes, some level, yes. right? So I mean, one thing is... This is the British thing yeah. that I'm trying to get you to <laughs> One thing is just once you've learned to think like that, you can't unthink like that, I think. And, and then another thing I think is just... I'll talk about what you were So if you're talking about the importance of philosophy relevant to other things, I just intellectually believe in it. So I just intellectually believe that we live in a world in which rigour is almost exclusively associated with methodological rigour. And there's obviously a degree of conceptual rigour that goes into the methodological rigour. You have to understand sure. what the numbers mean. You have to understand whether there's any degree of significance attached sure. to a correlation once you find it. So and how to do the experiments exactly, in the first place. Exactly. So yeah. there is rigour in there, but that's a different thing from conceptual rigour in a, in a, at a kind of more fundamental level where you would ask questions like, is the method I'm adopting appropriate to the object I'm looking at? What is the nature of the object I'm looking at? What is a proper explanation of the object I'm looking at? So for instance, if I say to you, if I drop a pen and I say, why did that pen fall down? Right? Then you would accept an answer like gravity. Right? To a point. If, yeah. if, if I suddenly sit down on the floor when we're walking along down the path and you say, why did you sit down on the floor? 
If I say gravity, you'll think I'm nuts, <laughs> right? Because you'll expect me to give you a reason which is more akin to the reason I have for doing this. Right. So in everyday language, at least, we use rather different ideas of what constitutes an explanation for purely physical phenomenon, like a pen dropping, right. um, on the one hand, and on the other hand, for human action. And it doesn't make a great deal of sense pushing that a little further to then get out your methodological hardware and start measuring how quickly people are exactly. sitting down and all the rest exactly. of this sort of thing. Yeah, and, and then if it, and within the, so it's obviously important because it's only by thinking about those kind of philosophical questions that we can decide what kind of methodological rigor we think is appropriate, uh, to what extent, to what ends, to what forms of explanation. So it's important, irrespective of the answers you come up with, that people should be thinking in those terms, I think. And then when you switch and you look particularly at the social sciences, I think this is a bit less true now than it was 10 years ago. But certainly 10 years ago, there was a fashion for people adopting multiple types of different methods. And you can virtually always do that. So you can look at a phenomenon and you can cast light on it by, say, producing a formal model of it from deductive rational choice principles, or by looking at in-depth case studies, or by doing a large-end statistical analysis of it. You can take the same phenomena and look at it in all these different ways, and there's nothing inherently wrong about that. But if you treat each of those different lenses on the same phenomena as generating an explanation, the type of explanation that is generated will look very different, sure. generally. So if you're offering a model, presumably the explanation is, this is what happens when people act rationally. Right? Whereas if you're looking at the case studies, you're kind of suggesting that you need to dig deeper to see what people actually were doing on this occasion, precisely because you're a bit sceptical of the idea that there's a formal universal rationality that applies to all these different cases. Right. And a statistical analysis would suggest that people act in uniform ways that are patterned, but not ways that are best treated by modeling, rather ways that are perhaps understood by their social location or social position. So each of these different lenses on the same phenomena suggests a subtly different mode of explanation. And it's not immediately clear that those modes of explanation are compatible with one another. So then, then someone's got to come in for, and do the philosophical work of making the explanations compatible with one right. another. And so ideally, it's going to be the author, but alas, Sometimes not. And, and is this idea of the necessity of taking a more synoptic view at some point, or necessarily digging deeper, connecting different results in different mm -hmm. spheres with some sort of philosophical backdrop or structure, is this gaining more credence in terms of its uh, popularity within the discipline? No, I don't think so. No? And are, does it vary so much from place to place. I mean, you mentioned the grand philosophical tradition at Oxford. Mm -hmm. um, can one point at various different centers and places around the world and say, yes, well, these guys look at things this way and that way, but for the most part, there are exceptions to the rule? Not or so can, much. Can I mean, the root, the root problem, I think, is the division of higher education into distinct disciplines, in which philosophy is treated as a separate discipline in its own right. And I think that's bad for both philosophy and other disciplines, in this case particularly political science. So it means that philosophers often are not talking directly to people who are engaged in practices, the practice of political science, or if they're philosophers of science, perhaps the practice of science. 
and instead philosophy has developed a tendency to turn back on itself and reflect overwhelmingly on philosophy. So it's become dominated, or again, slightly less true in the last five years, but for a long time, was heavily dominated by issues in metaphysics, epistemology, and the philosophy of language, all of which are issues that are primarily internal to philosophy, yeah. rather than ones that look out to other disciplines. Meanwhile, if you're in another discipline, like, say, political science, virtually nobody who goes through a PhD program in political science, unless they are a political theorist, will have any training in philosophy. Mm. And absent that training, they just really have uh, uh, unlikely ever to be introduced into what it would mean to do the kind of thinking I'm asking for. So it's a sociological issue. Yeah. Perhaps if we invented a, a discipline of applied philosophy, right. we'd, we'd be better off. But anyway, let me ask you, uh, I'm going to move uh, progressively, I hope, from the more abstract to the more applied, as it were. Um, but I want to touch on some ideas of political theory before we start looking at the applications and the ramifications for uh, everybody around us who lives uh, uh, in the real world, as it were, or at least most people who live in the real world. So at some point you talked about political science is not a science, um, but it, it's an art. It's an interpretive art mm -hmm. at some level. And my understanding of this is that there is a sense of interpreting, again, these different narratives that occur with different people in different places and different unique circumstances. And the idea of Im implying that there's some strict law-like mm -hmm. nature to um, the entire study of what we call politics is just a misguided idea and it will never work. Is that reasonable or is that yeah. a simplistic? No, no, notion? that's pretty reasonable. I mean, I will, I will qualify the claim that it's not a science. So it depends what you mean by science. So particularly in, say, the 18th and 19th century, science really just meant rigorous intellectual enterprise. And the study of politics can definitely be a rigorous intellectual exercise. And it can also be a rigorous intellectual exercise that's rooted in the study of facts. So in that sense of the word science, I don't have a problem with it being a science. But there's another sense of the word science, where what it would mean to say it's political science as a science is to say that the same sorts of explanations that work in the natural sciences work in the social sciences. And I think that's wrong. So I think the type of explanations we want in the social sciences are different. And I think the reason for that is that in the natural sciences, when you're engaging with the natural world, you're looking at objects which don't have intentionality. Whereas when you're looking at human actors, you're looking at objects, people, that clearly have intentionality and therefore are objects that we assume are capable of acting for reasons of their own, whether those reasons are conscious, subconscious or unconscious. Unlike your pen, as you were yes. talking before. And I think in everyday life, we all lead our life as if the way we explain human actions is by appealing to the conscious, subconscious, or unconscious reasons of the agent. Okay. So if we try to go for lunch with friends, and we try to arrange it, we assume they will act on reasons. If we think about our own selves, and we're making plannings for the future, we assume we are capable of having reasons. So we live our lives and engage with others as though intentionality is the thing to which we must refer to explain actions. So I think social scientists should do that. Um, and if you do that, if you treat the reasons people have for acting as the causes of their action, then the type of explanation you're going to offer is very different because you have to appeal to people's reasons. The best way to understand their reasons is to understand the location of those reasons in the wider web 
of their beliefs and desires. And that kind of explanation where you're effectively contextualizing, you're put, making an action intelligible by locating it in the context of a web of beliefs and desires, is very, very different from the what we loosely might describe as the search for invariant laws sure. that occurs in the natural sciences. Sure. So that is in that sense that there's a different form of explanation that's at heart in political science. I think it's not a science. And that also explains what I mean by saying it, that political science is an interpretive art. Because what I mean there is that to explain human action, we ascribe beliefs and desires to the actor. And that, that process of ascription, of saying when I sit down, oh, he did that because he was exhausted rather than because of gravity. That process of ascription is inherently interpretive. You can't open up people's heads and go, oh, there's a belief, there's a desire. Instead, you're always postulating sets of beliefs and desires to explain sets of actions. And that, for me, is an interpretive act. So I understand that. Um, and I, I think it's very difficult to countenance how anyone can believe that there can be clear law-like regularities in the human science domain as there are in the natural sciences. Mm -hmm. Perhaps some of your colleagues believe that, but I, uh, I personally, as a non-specialist, find this very difficult to believe. And I think most reasonable people would also find that difficult to believe. My problem, perhaps, is, is more in the other direction. So granted, it's very, very different. Granted that one has to take into account beliefs, desires, intentionality, customs, tradition, uh, language, culture, upbringing, all sorts of things to, to get a reasonably clear understanding as to why groups of people on average behave in a certain way, let alone one individual behaving in a certain way. Um, that, seems, that seems fairly self-evident. But the danger, it seems to me, of looking at things, maybe I just don't understand this, but it seems to me the danger of looking, of emphasizing the narrative aspect, emphasizing the individual, is that it might lead to a sort of all-out relativism, is that you can't say anything general mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. anybody, anywhere, at any time. Mm -hmm. You can't compare different human mm -hmm. societies. You just say, well, everybody's unique, different. They all have their own paths. And therefore, we can't abstract away and build any sort of rough models with caveats here, there, and everywhere, predictive models. Um, how would you respond to, to that? And, 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 and secondly, because I like to ask questions in, in all sorts of different numbers, um, have other people even accused you of something like that? Slender. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so let's start with your second question. <laughs> yes, lots of people say something like that. So now let's answer it, your first question. Um, I, th I think I have a range of answers. Um, so one answer I have is just that there's a, dis there's a key distinction between abstract concepts that are descriptive and explanatory. Um, so if somebody finds that, let's say, 80% of Berkeley professors vote Democrat. Only 80%? I, oh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not going to say they're wrong. I mean, that's just a descriptive sure. fact. Sure. Um, and likewise, therefore, it could be a, you could imagine with less rigor having a descriptive fact like capitalism arose from in the 17th and 18th century. Probably true, at least of British society. Um, but the problems are then not with trying to say things abstract, but rather with imagining there's one uniquely correct abstract descriptive statement, or with imagining that the pattern you find is itself an explanation. Right? So I don't have any problem 
with the idea of saying, coming up with aggregate statements that clump people together and are not about individuals. I mean, to pick an example um, of a term you use that I use a lot, tradition. I mean, that's an aggregate concept I like. I think people should talk about traditions. I think tradition plays a descriptive role, and but also an explanatory role of explaining why people have shared beliefs. So I don't have any prob intellectual problem with the idea of talking in abstract terms using abstract concepts. What I do think is that if we're to explain those abstract concepts, we need to, or abstract patterns. Can, can you just hold on? Yeah, maybe wait a bit that could be an ongoing issue. Oh, yeah. Hopefully not so much, but opposite me is the graduate affairs room. So if it's that door that's squeaking. It sounds like it's this one. Okay, in that case, yeah. we'll be okay. Otherwise, we could, we could maybe ask, put a chair up there and just prop it open or something. If people are, well, let's that see. Work? If, it, okay. if, it, if okay. it happens a few more yeah. times, we'll go out and okay. explore. Sorry to interrupt you, but no, I just... Yeah, perhaps just go back a bit to yeah. the beginning of what you were saying. Yeah, the yeah I'll, go, I'll go back to roughly where I started this because it wasn't very good anyway. <laughs> <laughs> we can do the whole thing over again. <laughs> so, um, so, yes, lots of people have asked me that. And that takes me to your first question, which is what would I say in response? And I think the first thing I would say in response is that we should, there is no, nothing wrong in principle with using abstract categories. So it's certainly the case that we find patterns of human action, like say 80% of Berkeley professors might vote Democrat. That's true. There's nothing wrong with saying that. You could also imagine more less rigorously defined abstract concepts, such as, say, using the word liberalism to define a certain type of belief system, or the word, um, uh, a word like joined up governance to describe certain sorts of institutional arrangements. Right. So as a, uh, there's nothing wrong, I think, with using abstract concepts to describe common patterns. That do exist. That do exist. Where I think people go awry is when they treat those abstract concepts not just as describing patterns, but also themselves as giving explanations of those patterns. Um, as though, for instance, joined up governance can be explained by something like the properties of modern post-Fordist society. Right? So when you appeal to a, a, an abstract concept to do explanatory work, then you need to be careful that the abstract concept you're using is one that can be unpacked in terms of intentionality, rather than the one that applies straightforwardly to objective phenomenon. So it seems like what you're saying, if I, if I understand it correctly, is one can look and say, yes, there are these, there are these facts about the world that have happened, um, but one can't then go back and actually justify them as necessarily happening yes. from some law-like structure because of the fact that they happen to have happened in this instance. Is that a fair...? Yes, that's exactly right. Okay. And the, then a, a, another version of the, the criticism of your second question that's sometimes <laughs> thrown at me would be something like, okay, but the, e the kinds of aggregate concepts I would allow for and the kinds of explanations I favour are incapable of generating policy-relevant knowledge. So if we want policy-relevant knowledge, we need to operate using more reified concepts. So concepts that use reified categories and do elide individual intentionality in a way I'm unhappy with. And I have some sympathy. I'm not sure how much. I, I genuinely am not. But I have some sympathy for that. I, I think there are times when policymakers 
need to adopt what we might call rough and ready generalizations if they're to make decisions. Good uh, decisions. Yeah, presumably. any decisions actually, <laughs> good or bad. I mean, sometimes you just have to assume that there's a pattern out there that's going to hold if you're going to make an intelligible choice, but not on other times just to make good decisions. But what that would imply is not that you shouldn't have social science like correlations or social science like models and not that social science correlations and models shouldn't play a role in policy making. The point is that we should think of those social science models and social science correlations as rough and ready generalizations. So you're fighting against hubris uh, to a certain extent. Yeah, right? absolutely. I mean, so, so, and, and too many social scientists either ignore the fact that the knowledge they're offering is at best rough and ready and an oversimplification or they pay lip service to that fact without actually taking it seriously. So they don't actually bother to do any of the work of unpacking their rough and ready generalizations in relation to intentionality. And likewise, when we switch and we look at the policy makers, I think too many of the policy makers treat these rough and ready generalizations as though they are scientific truths rather than as though they might be useful heuristics with which to think about a policy issue. So I would challenge both ends, if you like, of the policy expert, um, what would we call something with two ends, line or something. <laughs> I, I would challenge both the expert and the social, both the expert and the policy maker. And I would say the expert think too often acts as though what they're offering is akin to what science is offering, rather than recognising it's about intentionality and therefore about contingency and contestability and intentionality. And the policymaker too often takes what's offered as though it's a scientific truth, rather than as though it's a heuristic that they can use to illuminate aspects of the particular decision they're having to make, but nonetheless in the end the decision is going to rest in that particular case and not on a scientific truth revealed by the heuristic. Right. So as you were talking, an example that came to mind was also something that I believe you mentioned, so let me know if, uh, if I'm not taking this out of context. But most people who will casually or maybe even regularly peruse the newspaper and consider themselves reasonably well-informed citizens seem to be of the are bombarded with this notion that we live in a world where one has to make a choice between the free market and consumerism and choice and liberty, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, or this notion of looking at things from a community perspective, civilization, mm -hmm. uh, civility, community, looking after other people, and so forth. And uh, in its extreme version, that's a state-controlled system that, that enforces equality, uh, and, and the other in an extreme version is libertarianism mm -hmm. and everybody has free choice. And my sense from, from reading some of what you've, you've written is that therein lies a, a really a false dichotomy. Mm -hmm. and, and that's part of this pseudo-scientific framework, these are my words, not yours, mm -hmm. <laughs> pseudo-scientific framework in terms of these categorizations that seem to be like a law-like uh, right. category, but in, in fact they're really not. They, they really yeah. represent these descriptions which hold true to some extent. They have no, it's not as if they have no descriptive power, but to then assume it's either this or that and it's this way or that way and there's no possible way that you can somehow go beyond these, these intransigent categories 
is a misrepresentation and a deep misunderstanding of, of not only what exists, but what could exist in the future. Is that fair? Yes. I mean, I, the, I would add to it. Please. So I think that I think the idea that we live with a choice between market and state um, is something that is peddled in the newspapers. And it's something that, to go back to the beginning of our conversation, m was paralleled and debated at the time of Thatcher and Reagan and the rise of neoliberalism. And then what you seem to have was a fairly stark choice between something like traditional, the traditional bureaucratic structures of the welfare state on the one hand, and on the other, the kind of markets associated with things like privatization and contracting out that were promoted by neoliberals. Um, and if we were talking in the 1980s, I think that choice was one that, although it oversimplified, was something that made ideological sense of the public policy debate at the time. What most astonishes me today is the media, and I'm gonna, I would add to that, some academics still act as though that's the choice we face. And I find that quite astonishing. And I find it astonishing because no set of policymakers on either the traditional left or the neoliberal right actually believe in markets or in hi uh, bureaucratic hierarchies anymore. It's Manichean choice between, yeah, Manichean, sorry, they, choice they, between the two. What, what seems to me crudely to have happened is the neoliberals tried to introduce markets and the markets failed. They occasionally worked in some areas, but generally they failed. But unregulated yeah. markets. They, well, unregulated, sometimes when you privatise what you got was something that's more like a, an oligopoly with a few but also within organisations, the attempt to introduce contracting out and market-like mechanisms often led to something that would be better understood as packages of organisations all coming together to deliver a service rather than a straightforward contractual relationship. So the market reforms rarely worked and instead what you got was networks. At the same time as this was happening, the, the left was retreating intellectually from the idea that bureaucracy was a good thing. Indeed, many of the earliest critics of bureaucracy had been from the left, and they had seen bureaucracies as unresponsive. And instead, the left turned to networks as an appropriate solution to the problems of both bureaucracy and markets. So if you look at the history of something like the New Labour government in Britain, it's really about the spread of networks, much more than the spread of markets. Their key phrase was joined up governance, building networks across government institutions rather than marketization. And over the last, what, 20 years, most institute, political institutions in the world have been seeking to spread networks rather than markets or hierarchies. If you just think in American terms, the effect of something like the war on Afghanistan and the evidence that Afghanistan was a failed state led American policymakers to stop thinking in terms of the export of markets and instead to start to think in the terms of the creation and building up of stable political institutions as a, as a context within which markets might work. So broadly speaking, for 20 years now, the left and the right have begun to converge 
on the idea that we need more and better managed networks rather than either markets or hierarchies. But this is not being described well, by this the modern media. Exactly. And, and too many, I mean, I'm on the academic left, so I tend to pick fights with people on the academic left because left-wing people are always into infighting. <laughs> uh, but it seems to me too many people on the left have a vested interest in talking as if we still live in a world of neoliberalism. What is their vested interest? Explain the vested interest to me. Is it just, just that they've been saying the same thing for so long that they don't want to change their to, tune? To some extent, yes. Uh, and to some extent also the fact that they grew up in a world in which the right-wing bogeymen were going to spread markets and capitalism en everywhere. And that's what Marxism told us was going to happen. It was that, the, that capitalism would try to spread itself everywhere. So once the right wing stood up with Thatcher and Reagan and said, we're going to spread markets everywhere, then people on the left was like, yes, we always knew it. And at last they've come clean. So there's this kind of emotional attachment to the clarity of an ideological battle that they grew up with that, that is then blurred once you take seriously the fact that actually the right doesn't believe that strongly in markets anymore, or at least not in all contexts. And a lot of what it's trying to do is build and sustain what it would regard as a suitable networks. So, so I understand why your colleagues, sorry to interrupt you, but I understand why your colleagues, or colleagues, you know, writ large, but the media, why, why can't the media appreciate the subtlety? Are they just they're just not. Do you know? I have no idea. Yeah. I mean, I think. Well, I think one. Re two. Two reasons spring to mind, but they're both just conjectures. Put them out. There. Uh, and one is that we live in a, in, particularly in the anglophone world, we live in states that are dominated by two-party systems. So it's easy to have a market hierarchy contrast that fits onto political parties so that the political rhetoric around the parties matches, matches on yeah. to the ideological debate you seem to be offering people through your media. And then the second one is that networks are really, really messy. Um, and to try and talk and discuss a world of networks and bring it alive for an audience is very difficult. And I, I, I could get, I mean, I think First, you have to understand it yourself, you see. Yes, and exactly. Then, <laughs> this is true. <laughs> then you have to have the, the eloquence and the subtlety to be able to actually manifestly explain it to other people. You were going to give me an example, sir. Well, what I, was getting, I, I mean, I've got two things in my head that I wanted to say. And one was going back then to your characterization of my views on markets and networks. One aspect of my views, which I've been stressing, is that it's about time people realize, people outside the world of scholars working on public administration, that today we live in a world where the form of organisation that policymakers are really trying to promote is networks, not markets or hierarchies. And then the second thing I wanted to say, which can be stated much more briefly, is I have an ambiguous attitude to networks. On the one hand, I do think that networks are broadly speaking often, by no means always, but often a good alternative to not only markets but also bureaucracy. On the other hand, I think there's something profoundly wrong with the kind of social science that reifies networks, treats them as having intrinsic properties, as though, for instance, networks are bound to lead to greater levels of innovation and thereby encourages policymakers to adopt networks on the belief that there is some sort of natural scientific-like law, such as adopt networks and you will get more innovation. So let's talk a little bit more about these networks, because I, I don't pretend to understand the idea uh, deeply at all. So I'm the, 
I'm a perfect member of the target audience if you would be a journalist at the New York Times and you could explain to me in a, in a non-trivialized way what's actually going on. Um, granted that uh, we're living in a world now where networks are a dominant factor, maybe the dominant mm -hmm. factor. Um, how has that happened? Will it continue to happen? Describe these networks in some detail for me so I can get a clear understanding of what we're actually talking about. And what might I do to contribute as an ordinary citizen to the furthering of, uh, of, a, of a, if not actually positive, at least benign implementation of these mm -hmm. networks as, mm -hmm. as it moves forwards? Because I want to move towards this idea of governance and this idea of what's actually happening and how citizens can, can engage mm -hmm. in, a, in a productive way. I mean, I, my, my, it's, I f always find it hard to try and discuss what forms of governance now predominate because all of market hierarchy and network are at best reified terms that can operate as classifications. It's, it's not like you can point to something and say there's a network. And because you can't point to something and say there's a network in any meaningful way, you can't draw boundaries around a network and say that's what's included in it, that's not included in it, in, unless you do so in an arbitrary way. Therefore, you can't really count them, which means that the idea that networks are proliferating is a little bit meaningless. I think what I would want to say, and this is just a loose, my personal loose impression of government, is that bureaucracy still remains the predominant pattern of organisation within the public sector. But that in my lifetime, what we've seen is an increasing rise of network-like organisations at the expense of traditional bureaucratic structures. So that's the answer to the question of how would I characterise the public sector. On how did this happen? I think it happened in two waves. I think the first wave was when people tried to promote markets. So when people like Thatcher and Reagan introduced things like contracting out whereby the public sector, instead of providing a service like cleaning a, a building, would instead contract out to get a private sector entity to perform that service and pay the private sector entity to perform that service. When neoliberals introduced a contracting out, what they actually did was increase the numbers of organisations involved in providing services and thereby lead to the formation of new networks. Then I think in a second wave, starting in the mid-90s, policymakers became convinced not only that networks were spreading as a result of neoliberal reforms, but also that networks were often a good thing that could help to create greater involvement, that could help to create greater innovation, and that could help to overcome problems, some problems of financing. And therefore there was a wave of attempts across many developed countries to promote things like joined-up governance and whole-of-government approaches. And those tended to consist of the deliberate and, con and conscious construction of networks. So I think you've got networks, as a, firstly, as an unintended consequence of the neoliberal reforms, and secondly, as a deliberate policy agenda. So that's how I think it happened. So now let's talk a bit about what it looks like. Um, imagine we go back to 1979. And we live in a society that 1979 is when Thatcher was first elected. Mm -hmm. And we live in a society with a fairly strong welfare state. And we're interested in the old age care of our parent, say our mother. And our, our mother is, is ill, perhaps she has Alzheimer's. Then in that day and age, we would have gone along to our local practitioner 
and discuss with them what should happen. And there probably would have been a state home for the elderly. And our mother would probably have been admitted and the state would probably have taken responsibility for looking after her. And that's very simple. Right? We, would have, we would basically have handed the care of our mother over to this state agency, the particular institution for care, and they would have looked after her. Now what's likely to happen? And for many people, this will probably ring true. You go to your local practitioner, and then a range of other organisations get involved, not just one. Perhaps your mother wants to stay at home, and that's now plausible. Apart from anything else, it's probably a bit cheaper. And then she, but she can't do much for herself, so maybe she needs help in the daytime. So one organisation will provide care. Right? Then if something goes wrong, she has to go to a hospital. So the hospital is also involved in her care. Then perhaps she can't manage to cook for herself anymore. So then there's probably another organisation that's responsible for bringing food and the, at lunchtime and in the evening time. Perhaps she can't manage to walk. So perhaps there's someone else who comes around to wheel her around for a once a, a week outing. And all these different organisations then get involved in delivering care. Right? So instead of having the one bureaucratic organisation looking after your mother, what you now have is this package of organisations that form a network that collectively provide this care. And that creates an entire new range of problems in public sector management, most obviously coordination. How are you going to coordinate these different organisations and make sure they operate effectively alongside one another? Right. Presumably it also has some advantages to the extent that you don't have this one-size-fits-all mm -hmm. solution and some people who might need less care, to use this example, some people who, uh, who might need more care can have varying degrees of, uh, uh, of this and you don't have to be in a situation where once you cross a threshold you necessarily get put into that particular yeah. option. Um, but from an administrative perspective, obviously it's vastly more complicated. Mm -hmm. it's, it's presumably more costly in terms of coordinating all these things and it requires I would think some level of active management in real time to be able to constantly make decisions in terms mm. of how you integrate all these all these networks or all these factors on a case-by-case -case basis. I mean, my goodness, that seems horribly complicated and potentially very expensive. So let's move to um, both on the purely academic side and on the applied side as to recognizing that the world has changed. Mm -hmm. um, what should we do now? And you have a new theory of governance, right. um, and so there's a whole aspect of this in terms of uh, how you would like to uh, presumably portray the correct interpretation to your social science colleagues and, and how we should best describe what's actually mm -hmm. going on and in fact what we might want to be doing uh, on a higher level. And then there is the aspect of how it would apply to the little old lady who might actually need to get medical, uh, the little old lady who might actually need to have medical care and so forth. So let's, let's, let's look at the abstract level first. So you have a book on the new theory of governance. Tell me a little bit about, um, first of all, what motivated you to write that? Um, and let's talk a little bit about what the implications of that are within the academic milieu. And then let's move towards uh, the applications and implications towards, uh, towards everybody. That was, see how all these questions came in a row? Mm -hmm. <coughs> I can't stop, it's like a disease. Once you start, question <laughs> after question after question. <laughs> well, 
I think I was motivated in the book. Um, I think my most general motivation was the philosophical one we discussed earlier. So my, I, I wanted to undercut the idea that you could have a comprehensive scientific theory of governance. Um, and instead I wanted to suggest that you needed to understand the rise of the new governance, so the kind of network organisations we've been talking about, in through telling an appropriate historical story. So instead of saying it arose because of these formal circumstances, perhaps a shift from Fordism to post-Fordism, or perhaps because of the inherent rationality of markets and the inherent inefficiencies of bureaucracy, instead of a story along those lines, I wanted to say the shift from bureaucracy through markets to networks was a consequence of the spread of particular sets of social science understandings. And it only happened because social scientists generated forms of knowledge that suggested initially markets and then networks were the most efficient ways of governing the universe, or at least the public sector. Mm. So at a, at a very general level, I think what I wanted to say was, and I, I, you know, I don't think I ever say this in the book, but I think what I really wanted to say at a very general level was, we're too inclined to think of social science as something that's trying to describe and explain the world as it is. And often a better way of thinking about social science is as something that creates the world. And I, don't, I think most social scientists find the idea that social science creates the world very surprising. But if you stop and think for a minute, it's blindingly obvious. Because every time an idea from the social sciences finds its way into the policymaking world and policymakers act on it, whether that idea is Keynesian ideas about economics or monetarist ideas about the money supply or, or network ideas about network governance, whichever it is, once the idea makes its way from the social scientific community into the policy making world and then inspires a policy, it becomes real. It becomes real. So part of what I wanted to do was draw out the way in which social science makes the world. So I wanted to tell a, and give an account of governance that emphasised this productive aspect of social science in creating the world. I also wanted to suggest that there was something wrong with the forms of knowledge that social or the forms of social science that had made this world. So I wanted to I wanted to suggest there was something mistaken or wrong with those social science ideas which had promoted markets and networks as panaceas to the public sector's problems. And I wanted to suggest that those forms of knowledge were rooted in the false idea that you could have organisational theories that were akin to theories in the natural science. Um, and I wanted to say that's not quite right. So although I think, for instance, that these ideas, the ideas of the neoliberals and then the network theorists, have inspired public sector reforms, I don't think they've worked as intended, precisely because they're wrong. Right? So although the idea that the, the neoliberals would have told you that introducing markets would create markets and perfect competition. I think that's wrong. I think what happens when you introduce markets is contingent and contestable and it depends upon the traditions in terms of which people receive and read those beliefs. So what you actually get, for instance, is gangster capitalism in Russia. 
And likewise, when people introduce networks, they rarely work as intended because they're read and understood in different contexts. So when you say wrong, you mean wrong empirically to the extent that they don't achieve what it is that they are. See, the reason I'm asking this, yes, as, as I'm sure you can be aware, once, once you start using words like wrong and right, then you're appealing to some meta structure. Right. So when you say, but when you say wrong, it means they don't work in the way that they are advertising themselves as having worked. That's an when I say wrong, I mean philosophically wrong. Okay. So I, I, mean, I mean that they are premised on the mistaken idea that social science can offer accounts of the world that are equivalent to natural science. So they're typically based on the idea that social science is dealing with natural kinds, as though the market was a natural phenomenon, mm. um, or that networks are a natural phenomenon which can be individuated and that have essences and therefore intrinsic properties, which I don't think is true. And that's the first mistake. And the second mistake is the assumption that follows from that first mistake that you can offer similar types of explanations in the social sciences as in the natural sciences. That is, explanations that say a formal object of a type A will produce a result B. It will be a causal agent for yes, something. Yes, exactly. Okay. And I think both of those are mistaken. So that's what I really mean by wrong. But I think a manifestation of that wrongness is that if you introduce policies based on social science, you won't get the results the science tells you you will get. So that's some empirical quasi-verification yeah, of, of the their, philosophical, of philosophical wrongness. wrongness. Yes, <laughs> okay. that's right. Yeah. Okay. And my, my second question is, Granted that the social sciences somehow create the world in the way that you've described, which seems to me to make complete sense because the world that we live in is a world of human beings, and so the ideas that pertain to uh, what happens when human beings get together and how you regulate human activity and so forth, if imposed, actually creates, has a, a direct impingement on humanity, and so that's not a surprising uh, result for me. But what's interesting for me to contemplate and this is a very hard question to answer, but I wonder if you have any insights on it, is how some ideas get picked up and some ideas don't get picked up. That mechanism by which these, these ideas that are out there in the ether in the social sciences get, get somehow absorbed and then lend themselves to the creation of the world. How does that work and what distinguishes one idea from another or can one even address that question in any coherent way? Um, well, let me start with the way in which I think it's unhelpful to address that question. I think it's unhelpful to address that question in a way that would mimic the natural sciences. So it's unhelpful to address that question by asking something like, what formal circumstances explain why an idea will thrive? Yeah, but I'm just looking for like exactly, or something exactly. like that. <laughs> if you move away from that, which is how most social scientists would want to drive into that question, they would want to say, can we form a correlation find an establishment between an idea thriving. and so Once you move away from that, and you're just saying what loose things right. seem to happen. I think that the big changes in our, our social world that I know much about are firstly the rise of the social, dem social democracy slash progressive liberalism, and therefore of the welfare state and Keynesian policies. Secondly, the rise of neoliberalism. And thirdly, I would add, but I think a lot of people wouldn't, the rise of network governance typified in Britain by New Labour but elsewhere by the spread of joined up and whole of government arrangements. And I think in each of those cases the following conditions held. First, the relevant forms of knowledge 
often deriving from the social science, have been around for quite a long time. Right? So in the case of, say, the neoliberals, we'd have people like Hayek and Von Mises writing about the benefits of free market and the fact that bureaucratic structures were more or less bound to fail for at least 30, 40 years by the time neoliberals come to power. So you have, have a, a set of academics, typically, who've developed the ideas and started to promulgate them, quite possibly a small minority group with relatively little power in the academic world. Secondly... Helps if you took over a department or two, though. It can do, but yeah. it's not as important as the next second okay. one, which is those ideas find a, quite a wide amount of financial backing, mm. which gives them, helps to give them a foothold in and goes along with something like think tanks, policy institutes, and, and the like. So in the case of neoliberalism, you're talking about the role of things like the Adam Smith Institute and picking up these ideas, turning them into practical policies, funding the academics, and also taking the ideas from the academic world to the policy world. Right? And then the third one, which is harder to, to really kind of nail, is a sense that things are a mess and we need a solution. So you could imagine having the academic ideas and even money around them for a long time and no one doing anything about it. That happened with the neoliberals. It didn't happen quite so much with the rise of networks. It certainly happened with the rise of the welfare state. Um, so then you need, well, why does something, why do these ideas which are there and they're in, why do they get picked up? And I think that what happens there is that there's a sense of crisis, a, sen a sense that what's going on isn't working, right? So it might be that, say, World War II makes it seem unacceptable to everyone that soldiers should come back to being unemployed and homeless and you know, not having enough to eat. Or it might be that the constant rise of inflation and the appearance of litter all over the streets convinces people that something in the state is broken, which is what happened in the late 70s. Or it might be something that's a sense of crisis that's more restricted to an intellectual and policy world, such as that markets aren't working, and we now face a range of different problems, such as failed states, which is what I think happened in the case of networks. So in all of these cases, what you have is a sense of a crisis and that we can't carry on with the kind of organisational structures that we're currently relying on, and we need something new. But it's a sort of tipping point. Yeah. It? And at that point, I think what happens often is that it appears to people, to use a, a, a Thatcher phrase, as if they're a phrase, sorry, a Thatcher phrase. You see, that's what happens when you try saying Thatcher and phrase. You're appealing to Margaret Thatcher and you're tongue-tied exactly, immediately. Exactly. <laughs> She's just naturally evil. Avoid at all costs. So if, you, if you're, to use one of Margaret Thatcher's phrases, it seems as if there is no alternative. So what happens then is the set, a set of ideas comes in and it, can it seems to offer an explanation of the crisis. And a solution. And the very way it passes the explanation, the very explanation it gives, points to the solution. Right. Right? So if you come in and you say, the reason why we have this urban grime and poverty and squalor and why our soldiers might come back to nothing is that we live in a world in which urbanisation and the free market have gone unchecked by social values and in, in which we need forms of public organisation to deal with them. Then you're pointing towards a welfare state. If you say the problem is, the, so to move to the neoliberal example, you say the problem is that the public sector isn't working and it's not working because in the public sector there is no competition. 
and there is no need for people to become competitive or to respond to their consumers. There's the solution Then right you there. suggest the solution right. is to introduce markets and market-like right. mechanisms. If you turn to the, the more recent one and you say the problem is, so this is about the rise of networks, you say the problem is markets rarely work appropriately in the public sector and they certainly don't work when you have no state institutions then the solution is to build up appropriate state institutions. And insofar as you've already ruled out bureaucratic solutions, you're, left with, you're left with, we need networks, soft institutions, informal arrangements, relationships across the public and private sector or the public and voluntary sector. So there's, what happens is, I think, a sense of crisis. And then a viewpoint just offers a compelling narrative of why we have the problems we do. And that narrative also generates the solutions. Okay. So now I'm going to bring it all the way down to the man or the woman on the street, as I promised that I would, and maybe be a little bit provocative. So the immediate thing that I can imagine somebody listening to this might say to themselves is, so what? This is wonderful. This is nice. Here's this Professor Bevere at, uh, at Berkeley, knowledgeable fellow. He's got this wonderful interpretive picture as to what has actually happened in the past and what might happen grosso modo in the future in terms of how we're creating mm -hmm. the, our reality in terms of ideas that gain influence and how they may or may not gain influence. Um, there's this new paradigm of networks that I haven't heard of before. Now I know of this. 20 years ago it was another paradigm. 20 years from now it will be yet another paradigm. What does it mean for me? What, how, how can I react and respond to what you're telling me in some coherent way? How does it lead towards me living in a world with better governance, more responsive governance? You wrote a book on a, the new theory of governance. You wrote the, the, the Oxford University Press short uh, brief, brief introduction to governance. You're a governance guy. Tell me how, as a, as a non-political person on the street in Wichita, Kansas, or, or in Birmingham, or in uh, whatever, or in Calcutta, how can I actually further the cause of better governance for myself and my fellow citizens? Um, Hard question. And it you're, is, not really, uh, you're, not, you're not really in that job, so yeah, well, I just, but I'm sitting but, next to you, so I thought I'd But ask. it's also hard because I don't know which of several angles to come at it from. I mean, one angle I think would be that the issues that are raised by governance. So once you see that we live in a world where there is still the legacies of bureaucracy. As I said earlier, I think that's still the primary way in which government is organized. And we have definitely have greater contracting out, but we also have a spread of markets. Then you have this complex world, and each of these different organizations or forms of organization in, interacts with or creates a different way of linking the state to civil society. Right? So if you imagine you've got a bureaucracy, what you've really got is a form of command and control, whereby the state will say what will go on, and it, loosely speaking, that's what then goes on. When you have a market, what you're relying on is a price mechanism build, going, working alongside competition rather than command and control. And then in a network, what you have is something like trust and negotiation. Right? Now, each of those models of organisation might be appropriate to different sorts of activities. For instance, if we face a strong internal terrorist 
threat. Or if, say, our house is on fire, we probably want something that looks a bit like command and control. You probably don't want the fire people coming along, or you probably don't want to ring up and have to ring five fire stations. I don't, I don't want a network. Fi no. Find out, well, no, imagine it's a market. You have to ring up five fire well, stations, right, find out the that. different prices they would charge to put out the fire, right. right? And decide which one you want to pay to come and put out your fire. Or if it's a network, you don't want them coming along and all sitting around discussing how best to put out the fire. So there are some circumstances where something like command and control looks really good, right? Then there are other circumstances where markets might look really good. We might feel that we actually don't have many social values that are at stake here. It's not about people's rights. We don't feel there's a need for immediate control and authority. And maybe the market will help to drive prices down, and that's a good thing. Right? In other areas, a network might look great. Imagine that, say, we're talking about international aid. Right? The idea that USA just tells Liberia what it's going to do in Liberia seems silly. What you want is USA working preferably alongside non-governmental organisations like Oxfam, coordinating their activity and also working with the Liberian government, Liberian local authorities and Liberian NGOs. So it seems prima facie that each of these different types of organisations is suited to different tasks. And I think what the, the complexity of governance, when I said earlier that network governance is a mess, part of what that does, I think, is our get us as citizens to think about what organisation do we want governance, governments to have to civil society in different activities. Right. And I Under don't think there's a uniform organ. I don't think there's a right answer or a uniform one. You know, some societies might want their old people looked after by the, by the state. Other societies might want their old people to be looked after through networks of organisations. And, and it's not necessarily that one is right, it's that different sets of values are at play. And we as a society should debate what we want to happen in different circumstances. So I think that, that's one very important thing. I think we should be made, we should think more deeply and profoundly than we do about the kind of values and structures we have and move beyond the standard newspaper binary of market hierarchy itself seen as a all or nothing ideological construct and instead think about what kinds of relationships do we want in what sorts of circumstances. So that would be one very general answer to your question. Another would be um, that I think seeing this as network governance draws attention to a range of problems that can, the public sector in particular faces today which otherwise would be inclined to be missed. So then if you are a, particularly if you're a policy maker or a public sector worker, I think it can help you the be better to manage your task. So for instance, if you see that we have these mix of strategies, then you will see how important a role for government and for public sector workers is played by the idea of managing them. Right? Managing the mix between markets, networks, and hierarchies. And that's a very complex thing. If, for instance, you create a network Right? and the idea is that this is going to govern things, then you lose a degree of control. If then as a public sector manager you try and come back in and exert that control, then you're reasserting hierarchy over the network. So then you have a trade-off and you need to kind of think through which of those trade-offs you want. And once you accept what you've got, you accept, say, I want a network there and all, all your higher-ups tell you you will operate a network here, 
then you have to think about how to manage that network as best you can or how to manage this market as best you can. So I think it can guide the ways we think about these things. And then finally, I think that the, the extent to which my theory challenges reified concepts and models of social science that ape natural science, I think the extent to my, which my theory does that means that my theory suggests we should stop thinking about the ways of solving all these problems, including our relationship to civil society, including the way public managers deal with their domain. We should stop thinking of these problems in terms of social science giving us solutions. And instead, we should think in more participatory and dialogic modes. So I actually have a personal preference for a fairly clear response to the first question of how do we manage the mixed markets, networks, and hierarchy, which is that we should promote dialogue and participation. And this is all of a piece, it seems to me, with this idea of creating the society in which we live. It's this idea that the more dialogue we have, the more uh, views will come into play, and the more that will have a direct by some process, by some vague, fuzzy process, direct impact on what actually comes, comes to pass. Right. Um, it seems to me that uh, this is a moving almost, you mentioned the word utopian before. So here's my skepticism with this. As you pointed out, it requires judgment and sensitivity because you can't just rely on path solutions or path stereotypes mm -hmm. or market good, state bad, you know, any of this sort of uh, silliness. Um, it means that you have to be able to intellectually move on a case-by-case -case basis between different possibilities um, to be able to not only say this is a case when my house is on fire that, causes, that, that calls for this particular solution as opposed to that particular solution, but then you have to look at the subtleties of, of, um, uh, of, of the aspects of say networks are the best solution. Well, what sorts of networks and how best do we move forwards? So I see that being um, possible, but on a practical level, I am somewhat skeptical that, um, that we as a society can get our act together to be able to uh, get people involved at a, at a high enough dialectical or dialogical level to actually be able to participate in this way. And my, my principal source of skepticism, and I'm, I keep coming back to this, but it actually lies with the media. Because I think if we can't even get that story straight that you were telling me before, that hey, mm -hmm. you know, we've moved ahead, you guys are 20 years behind <laughs> in what you're reporting to people. And if we can't adequately respond to what people like yourself firmly believe what policymakers now in government firmly believe, what people in think tanks firmly believe that have influence, then that leads me to conclude that uh, we have a lot of work to do before we reach this happy day when citizens uh, can get together and be engaged in such a way that they can start participating in that dialogue. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think on, on the one hand, I would just want to say, I think that's what we already do. So actually, I think we already live in a world that is messy and where people are constantly making little judgments. So I think we already do the things you're saying are complex. So therefore, the question is whether we can learn to do them better, mm. not whether we can come to do them. We are bound to be doing them. And the question is whether we can come to do them better. But I, once you rephrase the question, something similar could still arise. So you could still say, 
is the way to do them better really to give everyday citizens a much greater role in terms of participation and dialogue. And that, that I think, is a, a, a real problem, at least in some cases. Um, and I think that there is always a trade-off between believing that people should participate and decide for themselves and believing that you know what, the, what they should decide at the end of it. You, know, you, you have to choose whether you're going to privilege the process of them deciding or your view of what's right. And that occurs everywhere. So think of the role of, say, bills of rights in constitutions. What they really say is the people can decide what they want democratically, but they can't decide to go against these rights. Right? So we're always going to have things. We're particularly reluctant to let people override through making their decisions, and we're always going to have a space where we want people to make those decisions. And the question is how we navigate that. And I think that what I'm saying is, in a way, Less, I do. I should preface what I'm about to say is going to sound like a, a, a more reactionary statement than I would like it to. So I should preface it by saying that I do think participation is a good and that people should actively seek to promote participation. But when I talk about participation and dialogue, I don't necessarily mean processes of radical participatory decision making in which the majority decides the issue or even in which arriving at some consensus decides it. So internet referenda on every exactly. single issue. I mean, but like more, more importantly, if you imagine a deeply divided society, Northern Ireland, um, you know, Israel perhaps, you can imagine something where a majority will willingly pass a range of policies that would be unacceptable in terms of what they did to the, majority, to the minority. This was your Bill of Rights example yeah, exactly, that you were mentioning just before. Exactly. But you can imagine it in policy sure. terms, say, one group A saying in order to qualify for public housing you must be a member of group A and because group A is a majority it goes through. I mean that's clearly unacceptable irrespective of whether we have a right to public housing in a bill of rights or not. Right? That level of unequal treatment is unacceptable. And it can be completely democratic. Exactly. So, so, so I think there are, you know, there, there are good reasons for not necessarily collapsing what I'm saying straightforwardly into majority decision making. What I am insisting is virtually always good is that policymakers, irrespective of whether they rely on majority decision making and radical participatory procedures for decision making, should involve the citizens in a dialogical process. And the reason I think that is virtually always good is because if you know, because social science can tell you, how your citizens are going to behave when you introduce a policy A, then you can know what the consequences of that policy A are going to be. Right? So therefore you don't need to talk to people. You can just introduce the policy because social science tells you what the result of the policy will be. But once you reject that notion of social science, once you reject the idea that social science can tell you that a population is bound to react in this way, then the way in which you, you come to think that the way in which the population is going to react is a bit contingent, and it depends on the existing beliefs and desires of the population, which, which may are change. also a bit consistent and may change through the process. Yeah. And in those circumstances, I think policymakers will almost always do well to involve the public, the targets of their policy, if you like, in a dialogic process, if only to learn more about how the policy is likely to work out. So even if we ended up deciding 
after listening to the target group of the policy, that we definitely did not want to do what they want us to do, because perhaps it's highly discriminatory to a minority group. Even if that's the case, I think the policy will be improved and more likely to have the outcomes we wish for. Having for, gone through that process. If we have been through a dialogic process so that the policymakers are more sensitive to the beliefs and desires of those they think the policy will influence and therefore more able to craft the policy and fine tune it so that it fits those beliefs and desires. Coming to the end, but I have a few tough questions for you. Tougher still. They get tougher as we get, off, as we get along. Um, so this is all very uh, comprehensible and logical and reasonable, it seems to me. Um, but moving to the uber practical, if you, if you will, You've just been elected. I've just given you the, the right to be elected. And in fact, you've achieved that. President of the United States, or perhaps better still, you're the, you're the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom with a majority government, which means you can do whatever you want. Um, although you wouldn't, of course, being the person that you are. Um, what would you do? And how, how might you change, not what would you do, that's too broad a question. How might you change the way governance is carried out writ large? What, would you, what might you do at the meta level with respect to governance? Were you in a position of actually making such a change? i got to rewrite your question a bit. Sure. Uh, because I think it's... It was a long question. Uh, anyway. No, it's, it, but it's that I think there's a there's one's attitude to tolerance means that you can agree that something should be allowed to happen without approving of it. So for instance, if I could say what goes on in this department, right? I would want, I wouldn't want to force everyone to do the kind of social science I favour because I believe sure. there should be other strategies, but nonetheless, I favour my type of... Sure, so, that's easy. Right, exactly. Yeah. So analogously, were I Prime Minister, what I would want is to, is to allow other people to do what they want in some sense. But if you ask me what, I, what might best suit me that they should want to do, I think I would want to wipe out social science as we currently know it. I mean, that's a very strong claim. Really? No, that's something that's... a bit like that. See, part, uh, part what if, if I am should right... Should have asked that first off. If I am right in my diagnosis, yeah. right, then the root problems, many of them, of contemporary social life come from thinking that social science is a natural science and therefore relying on formal explanations that either reify social concepts like class, bureaucracy, network, or reify human rationality so that you can offer formal models of it. Right? So there's an act of reification that then inspires formal explanations so that they seem to ape the natural sciences and they're divorced from historically contingent intentionality. Right? And that's, if I'm right in my diagnosis, that's the source of a lot of our problems. It means that people constantly think that social science will provide solutions, and right. it doesn't. It means we're constantly ruled by people saying... Here's no, the solution. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not just government. If you, whichever organisation you're in, you, you, you will, be, will have been subjected to markets and networks as modes of governance. So you will find that the way in which you are employed Perhaps you now have to do more contract work rather than being employed within an organisation. Perhaps your standing of employment is less secure. Um, perhaps the organisation you work in is flatter. 
Perhaps now you're meant to spend more of your time building network relationships with other similar organisations rather than managing people under you. Right? And then you switch to the way in which our health is governed in hospitals. The same is true. Right? You will have in Britain, you have, for instance, the general practitioners who will now purchase hospital treatment from different hospitals. So our whole life, our where we're employed, how our health is managed, how we're educated, all these organisations are increasingly governed by ideas coming from the social sciences, which in my idea are premised on this error. Right? They're premised on reification followed by formal explanation. So what I would like to see is the replacement of those forms of knowledge by more humanistic forms of knowledge. That is, forms of knowledge that recognise people that are intentional agents who act for a conscious, subconscious and unconscious reasons of their own, where those reasons are products of their wider webs of belief, which are things that they loosely inherit from historical traditions. Right? So you understand people as agents, or situated agents anyway. Once you make that shift in the form of knowing, I don't know what will happen. I can't say to change that, to, to change the form of knowledge will be to generate this. If, if I could, I or if You'd I intended part of the problem. to, I would be offering a formal <laughs> account of what will arise. So I, I, sometimes I analogise what I'm saying when, when, when faced by critics to, to at least one plausible reading of Marx um, and his view of communism, which is he knows he doesn't like capitalism. We should have a revolution. What will communism look like? I don't know. And it's only later, once you get the rise of what I'm thinking of as modern social science, that communists start to say the answer to that question is collective ownership of the means of production by which we need state ownership and state planning. Right? That was inconceivable for Marx himself to think in those terms. Those categories weren't around in the 19th century. So there's this more open-ended way of thinking about things where what you want is you, you want to get rid of what's there and precisely because what you want to promote in its place is something like a greater and more humanistic perspective, more rooted in people's freedom and meaningful choice and collective action together in pursuit of what they think is human flourishing, you can't tell them what they should then be doing. Is this catching on? Are you a lone wolf in this yes, regard? Yes, I think I'm probably not, <laughs> if not quite a lone wolf, at least a, one of a very small pack. Is the pack gaining some form of momentum, or, or are you stagnating as a pack? I'm not sure about that. I mean, I, I think it's gaining momentum insofar as I'm increasingly aware of academic organisations that bring together people who think things a bit like this, such as people who favour interpretive approaches to social science. But that could just be that as I work more and more on this, I get invited to speak to more and more sure. of these sorts of organisations. So it, it might be that we are a growing minority, or it might just be that I am more aware of the groups and organisations that are sympathetic to this perspective and that those have always been there. I know we're talking in broadly philosophical terms, uh, and that's perfectly fine, but is there anything that one can abstract away from this conversation that might apply more particularly to global governance, uh, pan-national governance, United Nations, or what have you. You mentioned NGOs before. We are talking about networks. Is there anything that one can say within the spirit of what we've been talking about um, that leads to some particular insight on a, on a, uh, on a different scale, on a, on a meta-national level? 
I think many of the same issues would arise. Sure. Um, so I, at a very general level, for instance, I think there was a time, think of when the League of Nations was created, or to some extent even the UN itself, when the only conceivable alternatives for world order were either something that looked like an anarchy of states or global government, where you had formal hierarchical institutions like the League of Nations or the United Nations. And I think one moral that comes across from the literature on governance is that even order within states is much messier than that. That it's actually never straightforwardly hierarchical, but also that doesn't mean you have anarchy. And it opens us up to seeing global governance as itself something that is a, a mess, not necessarily in a bad way, a mess that arises out of a mix of some hierarchical institutions, sure. which would include the UN, but also perhaps include regional organisations like the EU. Complex. Um, yeah, exactly. It would include those, but then it would also include networks, perhaps um, say that a network of organisations that will go in and try and deal with um, the aftermath of the earthquake in Japan or the aftermath of um, the Haiti disaster. And it will also include market relationships with perhaps within trading blocks or perhaps more globally. And all of these things are in fact parts of global government and they are all governed more or less formally or informally by human agents. So one thing I think it opens us up to is a, a more nuanced picture of what we might mean by global governance. And once you do that, then you're, you open some of the same theoretical questions. So you open up the question of what do we want the relationship to be between government and civil society? In the, in the case, I think, of global governance, that's made slightly more complex because in a way what you're saying is what do we want the relationship between, between global organisations, states and civil society? And I personally often favour something like global civil society and I'm often quite hostile to states, but I think global civil society should interact with international organisations. So I think we face the same sort of moral questions about what sort of levels do we want to be governed by here. And going with that, I think we face something like the same question about imposition, whether we're willing to impose things on people. So just as we face the question of um, we'll have a Bill of Rights to restrict what goes on here, but in this case you're free to make your choices. What do we want to say to whole cl clusters of people, the vast majority of want to do, which want to do something differently? What do we say if there's a society, the vast majority of which really don't want democracy? They just want an, a, a, a stable government that will hopefully help the economy to grow. Or what do we say to a society that systematically, including the women themselves, think women should not be as well educated as men? Right? What right do we necessarily have to go in and try and put those right. I think we often might have a right, but we need to be careful to wonder what it is. And if we do think we have a right, is it one that's best exercised through some sort of global hierarchy, or is it one that should really be done through networks, including ideally networks that involve dissident members of the society we're trying to transform? It's interesting because as you were talking, I was thinking, typically we like to think, or at least I've thought uh, in the past, that, well, world government is this quasi-utopian idea. 
but yeah, we'll wait until we get our national government solved, sorted out, and, and actually functional, and then we'll we'll talk about world government. So it's it's so far down the road, I can't even imagine. But a, according to what you were saying, and at least what, what what I began thinking of as you were talking, is that it might actually work the other way. You might actually have this this more uh, tolerant, narrative-based um, elimination of formal social science systems and try applying them, as it were, try applying this, this general ethos towards global government scenarios mm -hmm. with all their messy, complicated players. And then if that starts to bear fruit in some objective way, it might actually trickle down, as it were, towards national governments. Do you understand what I'm yeah, saying? Is, that, is, that, is, yeah. that, is that conceivable? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, I, I, th I certainly think the following is true. I think that the absence of a global government, so the absence of, a, a, of something that looks like the federal government of the US ruling over the whole globe. I mean, obviously, there are things a bit like that. But the, the, basically, the absence of a global government means it's easier to appreciate and try and navigate your way around a messy patchwork of governing organizations and to see that as acceptable and okay rather than to see that as a failure of government in the way that one would within a state. And also I think the fact that in global governance, the fact that we do live in a world of states, and those states do have populations within them, means it's somewhat easier to be sympathetic and aware, sympathetic to, if not, well, aware of, if not sympathetic to, just do it again. Yeah, that's what's about to do. <laughs> well, we can figure it out. We don't need that. <laughs> and, and then, I, so I think, firstly, that the absence of global of a global government means it's easier to think about being happy with a patchwork of arrangements that are, involve a greater role being given to markets, networks, and particularly in my case, to civil society organisations. And I also think that the fact that in, in terms of the global order, we are dealing with a world of states, so obviously, means we confront more dramatically something like the question of multiculturalism. So we, 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 we confront fairly dramatically the question of what right have we got to make them do what we think best if they don't think that. Right. Um, it's and, immediate. And, 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 and if not always, I think at least at times, we are going to be more pluralistic in our attitude to other states than we would be to other groups within our own society. We're going to extend a, a greater range of rights to them. So often, within the US, for instance, multiculturalism really just means tolerate different groups but only tolerate them to the extent that they too are tolerating other groups. So you're not really assigning distinct rights to them to engage in practices that we think are harmful and wrong. Right? Whereas I think when we're dealing with states, maybe we would be more willing to do that. So what you have then on the global system is impetuses that in the case of the fact that we're dealing with states drive towards a greater acceptance of a pluralist outcome. And also, because there is no overt global government, drive towards a greater reliance on networks and organisations within civil society. So I think there is something about the global order that facilitates the rise of more pluralistic and 
open patterns of social organisation for both better and worse. I mean, that should be said. I mean, again, the better is it's more pluralistic and open and people can do what they want. The worse is you're less able to effectively rule out things you really don't like. Sure. But again, that implies some form of de deontological supremacy, yeah. as it were, which, yeah. uh, which goes against not you as a person, but you, but you as a philosopher yeah. at any rate. <laughs> That's wonderful. Mark, is there anything that we've omitted that you'd no, like no, to that's, add? That's pretty good, I think. It was pretty good. That's the best you can do for while you're British. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you very much. much. Thank, Thank you. you very much. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About Politics, along with separate discussions with Jacques Bertrand, John Dunn, Michael Fraser, and Josiah Ober. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. For those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in, are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.